Sonny, you ever owned a car before? Yeah, you own some Mustang. No. I just got my license. Name's George LeBay. Honey Cunningham. What are you asking? Start her up. Really? Her name's Christine. I like that. Come on, Arnie. We gotta get going, huh? My asshole brother brought her back in September, 57. That's when you got your new model year in September. Brand new she was. She had the smell of a brand new car. That's just about the finest smell in the world. Except maybe for pussy. Sky, and this is episode 91, our first of 2023, and tonight I'm joined by two returning guest hosts, neither of which have appeared on a Film 89 episode together, but they both appeared on a previous episode of Wrong Real with each other, and they'll be joining me tonight via Skype from Los Angeles, and it's great to have them back. It is, of course, Jacob Rivera and Kyle Reardon. Gents, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having us. Death to the shitters of the world. <laughs> <laughs> So on tonight's episode, we thought we'd kick off 2023 with a look back at a film from one of the Film 89 team's favourite directors, John Carpenter. Now, previously on Film 89, we've dedicated episodes to Carpenter's The Thing and The Fog, and we've also discussed his 1978 classic Halloween at length across numerous episodes. But tonight, we'll be looking at maybe one of his lesser-talked-about films, his 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's Christine, his tale of a possessed 1958 Plymouth Fury. So, gents, when did you first see John Carpenter's Christine? I was about eight years old. I was young, and it was a film my parents showed me because they were getting me into the Stephen King thing, you know, some of these like Cujo and Pet Cemetery, some of those kind of easier, more palatable films. And Christine was one I saw at Blockbuster, and I'm like, I had, I, we got to get this. Like the the poster was cool on the car, on the DVD, and it really sparked my imagination. I I I just couldn't realize how cool and a concept of just a killer car 
And like, it was basically like Jaws with a car to me. And I was like, all right, I'm in. And I didn't return to it until only like a year ago. I couldn't comprehend how great the filmmaking was. And it was a Carpenter. It's like a lost gem for Carpenter in a way, because it's like him in his peak, his prime. And he's just making like the top his level, just making films. And it's such a nice and wonderful film. So, yeah, I was definitely a very young kid when I saw it for the first time. Yeah, I think um, I actually had a, a I didn't see it in the theater like I, I did for a lot of films in the here in the states we had a, a big thing called you know I, I know it's still around but hbo like cable um hbo um movies you know used to come on like the saturday movie and, and all this stuff but that's where i think i, I saw it um because i can't quite remember when exactly i saw it first but I, i'm pretty sure i didn't rent it I, I probably saw it on hbo it was on hbo all the time hbo had was the notorious uh for putting the same movies on over and over and over again and it just caught my attention and i didn't know who john carpenter was or you know i had a little bit of uh you know who stephen king was but uh i just i loved the movie and i probably revisited it throughout my my life you know many times and and i think i told you guys on a chat that i probably watch it like one or two times every year <laughs> and for the last i don't know 10 years oh yeah well if you're watching it that often and then you know obviously that that's a a film that you rate quite highly. Until this rewatch, guys, I've not seen Christine since my early to mid-teens when I saw it on VHS, so that's roughly 30 years. And as I was saying to you guys the other day and to some of our, our other circle of friends, this rewatch almost felt like watching the film again for the first time, because I remember enjoying it when I first saw it, but I don't remember the film being as well made as I found it to be on this rewatch. I, I think I'll come back to that when we give our final thoughts on the film. But it, yeah, it really did strike me how well made this film is. I just had one thing as well. I was just thinking, uh, it, my young brain connecting movies. I always try to connect things in one way or another. Uh, I had seen Jaws 2, like, very young, and I actually rewatched that film a lot in my youth. And uh, Keith Gordon being the star of Christine was definitely a, a selling point for me as well. I always loved that actor. He's just got such a unique look and plays a really good nerdy kind of guy. And uh, seeing him star in a movie was like mind blowing for me after he was in Jaws too. Yeah. <laughs> that was just one little thing I want to add. So let's talk a little bit about the the sort of inception of the film. Now, producer Richard Cobritz, he'd made the Salem's Aunt miniseries when uh, he was an executive at Warner Brothers. And Stephen King had liked that show and he'd sent Cobritz his manuscript for Christine, which was as yet unpublished, with a view for Cobritz adapting the manuscript. And Cobritz loved it and, and how the book or the story that would later become the book celebrated America's obsession with a motor car. Cobitz then approached John Carpenter, who was fresh off of the thing and the relative critical and commercial failure of that film. He, you know, liked what he was being presented. He was on board and then Bill Phillips wrote the screenplay and in April 1983, they began filming while Stephen King's novel was the number one best-selling book in the US. Now, Jacob, you've read the book, yeah? Correct, yeah. I read it about five years ago for the first time. And how does the book compare to the film? I mean, the book is quite thick. And I will say, you know, the one thing that maybe this is why I love the film so much. The one thing as far as the book compared to the movie, most of the time the book is better than the movie. But in this case, I think the movie and the choices they made are way better than the book. Like the ultimate uh, kind of wrap up of the book. Book and, and the things that happen in the book. So I would say the book is probably not one of my favorites uh, as far as Stephen King novels go, but uh, yeah, the, I think the combination of the screenwriter and, and John Carpenter and 
everybody's kind of touches on it uh, has done really something really special here. Jacob, I have a question about the book. Does he explain why the car is possessed? Yeah, he does, doesn't he? It's um, it's the previous owner, isn't it? Yes. So in the in the move, so yeah, this is one of the good changes that they did. So uh, in the book, it's actually Roland LeBay who sells him the car and then basically um, dies uh, shortly thereafter. And what it is is that it hit Roland's like spirit into like Arnie, like possessing him and the car because he's just like this angry, angry person who's, who's just obsessed with his car. And they didn't do that in the in the movie. They, they in the script and the movie they changed it because and I was watching some of the special features and, and whatnot in the commentary. They said that uh, the there's another film that where I think um, uh, Kyle, you did a podcast on American War of in London, where the guy dies and then he's kind of like haunting him and telling him, you know, uh, you know, as he's de- decaying. And this this is very similar in the book. The book uh, he's kind of like Arnie can see him in the like the rear of your mirror and he's kind of like telling him what to do and and uh, basically, you know, when it's killing the the people, it's you know, it's 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 the uh, LeBay, not uh, not not Arnie, and and so that those are the, the changes in the book from the movie. So Jacob King King's books always, you know, often notorious apart from his, his shorter stories for being quite lengthy. You know, how many pages is is Christine? It's like seven hundred and something. <laughs> I mean, like seven hundred pages. Seven twelve. On, on such a relatively simple story. How, yeah, it's 721 actually, because there's an epilogue. But um, yeah, it's it's a big book for for yes, for a very simple kind of uh, story, and and how they were able to do it in the movie and kind of like you know uh, hit on all the I think the high points and 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 you know do a good job. Mm. So going back to the production of the film, they were able to find 24 Plymouth Furies and. By means of cannibalizing them for parts, they were able to put together 17 complete cars for the film, and they ended up destroying all but two of them. And then, in terms yeah. of the you know the actual uh, human cast, they they pretty much went for virtual unknowns for the you know for the main trio. Keith Gordon, he was already something of an established actor. He'd been in Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. He'd been in Jaws 2. He'd been in Bob Fosse's All That Jazz in 1979. And he was working in New York when he was cast as Arnie, the, you know, the central character, or kind of central character. I'll come back to that later. And he says that Christine was like a filmmaking education for him and that he would ask John Carpenter a nauseating amount of questions on set about shots he was setting up and his approach to making the film. And then Keith Gordon would later himself go on to become a director. Now, his best friend, Dennis, who's played by John Stockwell. The film, certainly the first half, is almost told from Dennis's point of view. Stockwell had just got out of college, and this was kind of his first film role, really. I've not seen him in anything else. Yeah, Yeah, he was, uh, I think, another unknown. uh, You know, like you said, they wanted to cast all unknowns. Like Arnie, I think Kevin Bacon was uh, considered, but he ended up doing Footloose. Um, I know um, Nicolas Cage was considered for like Buddy Repperton. I think are are either Dennis or Buddy Repperton. But like there's uh, Scott Bayo and uh, Brooke Shields were also mentioned for Arnie and uh, Lee. Um, So I mean. They, I think they did the right thing by casting unknowns, and they all did a, did a, a good job, I think, in this film. But uh, it, what, when you cast somebody that has some type of like thing tied to them, like when they're kind of known for things or kind of have a history, I think sometimes the audience kind of like paints that history on these characters, you know. So when you do the unknowns, it's kind of like I don't know anything about this guy or I haven't seen this person very much, so I can they can embody the character more. Yeah, and you know, there's no better example than what George Lucas did in 1977 with Star Wars. You know, the the main, right. the main trio were virtual unknowns at the time, and you know, look how well that worked. Yeah. 
And Kelly Preston, she plays the typical sort of cliched high school cheerleader, Roseanne, but it's Alexandra Paul as Lee who becomes the focus of Dennis and Arnie's attention. And, and Paul, I think she was just 19 when she was cast. And both John Carpenter and Keith Gordon both said how much fun everyone had on set with pranks being played with the cast and crew, and it was generally a really enjoyable shoot. And Alexandra Paul had an identical twin sister who she snuck on set one day, and with the assistance of the hair and wardrobe department, her sister was made up to look exactly like Alexandra. And when Carpenter met her to shoot the, the scene that day, I think it was the um, bulldozer scene, thinking that it was Alexandra. Right. Something just made him feel really uncomfortable and uneasy because he had this feeling that there was just something not right with this girl and something off with her. And then when Alexandra appeared, he was completely floored because he had no idea that she had a twin sister. Yeah, it's a great it's a great uh, little story they, they tell in uh, some of these featurettes and, and whatnot. Bearing in mind that Carpenter had just come off the thing, which that was a tough shoot. You know, it was a very tactical shoot. They were filming in the freezing cold of, I think it was British Columbia. And then they were also mm-hmm. in the studio in Los Angeles, which was baking hot. Everyone having to wear winter clothing, thick woolly coats and stuff. You know, then there was also the, the stuff in post and, and you know, the, the fact that upon the film's release, it just inexplicably, and, you know, we've discussed on this podcast at length why the thing failed. But, you know, coming on to this film, then, it, this one seemed like a relative breeze for him and... You know, he certainly talks about the making of this film with like really fond memories, as does you know most of the cast. Yeah, and he uh, he even talks about like because of the disappointment of the thing and, and you know like kind of being tied to him, he wanted he needed a job, and this seemed kind of you know like a easy kind of I guess paycheck and whatnot. But I think you know like you said, he did enjoy making it, and, and because the, the cast was all you know everybody was was really great and. And whatnot that uh, you know that of course makes the shooting of the film you know that much more enjoyable. Yeah. Now the the film opens with a load of Plymouth Furies rolling off the assembly line in Detroit, 1957, as the little cue card on screen tells us. All of them are cream, but with one striking red one standing out. And then we see one technician get his hand crushed as the bonnet crashes down on it, and another one is killed, but we don't see how he's killed. He just falls out of the driver's seat dead. A cool little technical thing that they did on this opening scene, which I like, was to shoot it on Fujifilm, which has a softer, warmer look to it than the rest of the film, because this scene is set in 1957, and obviously the rest of the film is set just over 20 years later. And then we cut then to 20 years later, and the film, you know, lo and behold, just looks a lot sharper. And I think that opening shot, the streets where they're shooting it, is literally a few streets away from where Carpenter shot Halloween, like five years before. Yeah, correct. It was, uh, I think, somewhere in Pasadena. Yeah, somewhere in Pasadena, yeah. I like that they, you know, they changed this uh, kind of, this from the book, right? So we're we're told basically at the start that this, this car is just evil already, right? Like this, you know, it's already killed two people or hurt one person, killed another person, you know? So it's, you know, that's the, that's the kind of the lead up, you know, we don't have to go into like how the book uh, like I just uh, described with the book where it's basically LeBay who's possessing uh, the car. So I, I like that choice. And, you know, it kind of cuts out a lot of this, I guess, maybe filler to leading up to that. And, and Carl, you're, you're a writer. You know, you've, you've written your own screenplay. You've, you know, correctly, you've, you've made your own film. What do you think from a writing point of view with the fact that Carpenter has, has made the creative decision not to tell us at any point how or why this car has seemingly come alive and become possessed and is like wholly evil and, and the fact that it's never explained to us and we're just made to accept it what do you think of that from a writing point of view i love it and it, I, I love when most filmmakers adapt stephen king's stories because 
a lot of my issues with his uh, his stories in general is it's so over explaining everything and there's so much detail, which is great in a book when you can visualize things and whatnot. But for translation to screen, uh, streamlining the story and just taking the few bits that are really important emotionally and then all the stuff about the car being possessed, you don't have to explain that because whatever we create in our head is going to be scarier at the end of the day. And it's more eerie that this thing is just existing as it is more than uh, if you were going to tell me it was possessed by old man and he died and now Arnie's also possessed and all these kind of far-fetched things that, you know, are classic ghost story, uh, you know, tropes, but it just, it, it really modernizes the story in a way, but keeps it still genre. It's still a genre movie at the end of the day. And I also, I had one other thing I wanted to say too about the intro. I hadn't noticed it until re-watching it a few days ago. It's interesting that that factory worker inspecting the car, it's like he's almost checking her out in a way. He's looking at her butt, you know, with the trunk, and then he's lifting up her skirt with the bonnet, and it's then he gets his hand slapped away, but he gets it crushed instead. It was a really subtle, like, hey, I'm a girl, I'm a lady, and you got to respect me. The car has its own personality without saying a word. It's just brilliant direction and brilliant writing um, to, like, already give you the personality of the car before the movie even begins. I just, I really enjoyed that like little kind of subtle subtlety that Carpenter is so great at. Christine has some sass. Yeah, there's loads of pseudo-sexual ways you could read into this film, and especially in the scene later on where Arnie sort of steps back from Christine after she's been destroyed and says, show me what you can do kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's so brilliant. It's so subtle. Yeah, I, I fully agree, Carl. That the fact that we, we're never given any explanation as to why Christine is what she is, how she came to be, I just think is one of the film's strongest points. Because as soon as you try to explain something like a car coming to life and killing people, you're literally just pointing with a huge cursor at that aspect of the story and saying, this is ridiculous. But if you don't explain it, and we're just made to accept it, especially the way it's done here, it just, it just works. Well, you know, it's the fear of the unknown. We fear that which we don't understand. Yeah, exactly. And if we're ever yeah, given an explanation yeah. as to how something works or, or where someone, you know, a, you know, a horror character comes from, as soon as you start to do that, you humanize them, you make them something that we can relate to and you make them less scary. It's just a perfect narrative choice by Carpenter. Yeah. Yeah. So after the opening scene then, Dennis and Arnie, it's the first day back in school after the summer break. And then you've got that, the workshop fight with Buddy, the knife-wielding bully played by, um, is it William Ostrander? Who clearly yeah. looks like he's in his mid-twenties. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... I was going to say, like, maybe his, his early thirties. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say that too. <laughs> One of the things that Bill Phillips, the, um, the screenwriter, said is that the producers, they wanted a, a harder rating because they were fearful that on the initial cut they were given or the initial script they were given, that it wouldn't be gory enough or violent enough. You know, the, the very nature of a lot of the deaths in the film, especially the way they were eventually filmed with a lot of the stuff being off screen, it would maybe prompt the MPAA to give it a lower rating, like a PG rating. Obviously at this point in 1983, the PG-13 rating wasn't in existence. So fearing that, they went to Bill Phillips and he said, look, can you um, maybe up the quota of bad language in this film? And I think one of the best examples of how like really biting and crass and coarse the script is, is in this 
you know scene in the in the, the workshop with the with the bully. Obviously, you know the, the way he changes his name from Cunningham to something else. You know, a little bit more um, insulting. And I was watching it thinking, holy shit, this is not your typical kind of um, early 80s cheesy horror film. It's like, this has got really sharp dialogue. And it was from that point I'm thinking, I don't remember any of this. This is a long time ago I've seen this film, but holy cow, this is something, you know, entirely different to what I remember. And it really did strike me about, you know, certainly in the first half of the film, how good the script is. That's uh, why I love Carpenter. And uh, I know he doesn't fully write his films, but he's very in charge of his characters. And his characters are always real. They're not always perfect. Like, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween smokes pot. It's like, she wasn't the virgin perfect girl. You know, she's trying to get a guy. And it's like, in all those movies, the, the hero girl is a virgin, perfect, everything. And I just love that Carpenter is not afraid to show people for who they really are. And that's what makes you believe in the ridiculous genre concepts of his films. That's why you buy into the thing. That's why you buy Michael Myers as just a guy coming to kill you. And that's why you buy a car that can just drive around by itself and kill you. Yeah. It makes sense because you believe the world because you believe the people that are inhabiting his film. And it's just, he's he's one of the best of that. Yeah, I, I just like that kind of, yeah. the, the the fierceness of the bully and the fact that he, he stands up to the teacher as well. And he, he, he looks far too old to be in high school, but he's still <laughs> physically imposing and threatening. Yeah, he's definitely scary for sure. He's definitely got the build. It's just a little, you got to buy into that one for sure just because of his look. <laughs> yeah. But that this was a common thing in, in a lot of for sure. a lot of movies though, and uh, and you know it's sometimes it's a pet peeve for some people where you know people are cast uh, in as high schoolers, but you know they're obviously not high schoolers. You know they're in their you know late twenties or, or whatever. Um, I mean, famous one uh, here in the, the United States is Beverly Hills 90210. You know, with uh, with that <laughs> cast, you know, the, all that cast was like incredibly old older to be playing high school but you know just to give some some respect to what i think is one of the i have two top two bullies ever in film and buddy repperton is one of them uh the other one being um <laughs> buddy and uh three o'clock high I'm yes. his last name right now and it's it's i think it's it's funny that they're both named buddy like this is a, this is a name that's so like I, you never meet anybody that's named Buddy anymore, but it's it somehow they got tied to this uh, to this bully uh, moniker of of you know being the bully. But I think you know he's he's so great, he's so menacing. He's just like the you know like the typical bully. And I know Stephen King. You know I'll give credit to the screenwriter and also King for you know um, also fleshing out this character or creating these type of characters that I think you know people can relate to because I'm not sure how how your experience was in uh, Sky, but like. I know for here in the United States, I mean, there, you know, there is bullies. And I mean, of course, in this movie, it's a little bit, you know, heightened. But, uh, well, I mean, there are bullies that do, do like terrible things and, you know, get, gang up on, on you know, weaker kids and call them, you know, Cunningham and all this stuff. So they do a great job of like a kind of, a, you know, um, painting the scene of uh, where people watching the film can relate and be like, oh, well, I, I kind of know a guy like that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it. <laughs> If you've got any idea where the film's going to go, at this point you're just thinking, "Well, these guys are dead." You know, they haven't even found the car yet, and you know, we, you all know that these guys are going to be the focus of Christine's fury. So then, on their way home from the first day of school, Arnie and Dennis find Christine, and we meet Robert's Blossom as LeBay, the brother of the now dead former owner of the Red Plymouth Fury, and I just love. <laughs> 
the matter-of-fact way that he later tells Dennis this like grim fate that his brother's wife and daughter met before his brother himself gassed himself in the car. And there's that line from Blossom about the, the smell of a brand new car, which I don't remember any of the dialogue from this film from when I first saw it, apart from this one line. <laughs> because <laughs> my best friend growing up, who I actually watched this film with for the first time, in our because we were going through a period of just renting all the you know the the, the cool looking horror films from the you know local video store and Christine was one of them and we watched together and it was that one line that we both remembered and we both would just quote to each other endlessly and he was of course um, he was the scary old guy wasn't he from Home Alone yeah oh yeah I didn't realize yeah that, the, the yeah, guy with the snow shovel it. yeah oh man but you know he's <laughs> he's such a cool character I just love it right because he's selling this house he's, he's he's selling the car all of his brother's worldly possessions and then when Dennis later goes back to visit him <laughs> he's got the same ridiculous looking out I don't what is that like, kind of vest he's got on with all those kind of straps on it what is that so it's it's a back it's like a back brace so like in the book what happened is that actually um roland levey the the brother who sells him the car you know uh versus him being dead already he actually has a back problem has a back brace and actually later on in, in the book arnie uh, hurts his back and starts to take on characteristics and, and starts wearing a back like kind of brace uh, also so they they obviously change that from the movie but uh yeah in this uh he's playing george you know so um you know he's kind of i, I guess uh, in this scene and then later in another scene with dennis you know kind of painting the picture of of you know christine and you know obviously giving it the name you know so that uh, arnie gets attached to uh, and of course you know going back to what kyle said you know that it kind of leads back to the you know the whole girl aspect of this car you know the, this this lady that's a sassy lady that uh, you know will, will become christina in its full form i may be foreshadowing that the, you know the eventual injury that dennis sustains and almost breaks his back yeah and then i just love the way that when dennis goes to visit him again later on that he's, he's got that same kind of you know whatever it is back brace fest but he's also got this right. like sort of new neat looking jacket that he's probably found in his brother's wardrobe that he's put on and it just the outfit just doesn't go at all like but i just i love his character and he's just so i don't know he's just got something about him and every little line he delivers is it's just the bluntness with with which he like he, he delivers that line about the smell of a new car oh, yeah so and good. I think, I, you know, he has that look where, like, when I'm watching, I could, like, I could, like, smell him. He smell, I could, yeah. I, I bet you he smells like a, you know, a dirty old man, you know, yeah, and just, you know, smiling. hasn't showered or whatever. Yeah. Elsewhere in the cast, we've got Robert Prosky, who plays, like, the, the ill-mannered, really unpleasant Darnell, the owner and proprietor of, of Darnell's <coughs> do-it-yourself garage. Now, guys, do such places exist? A do-it-yourself garage where you yes, would go they, fix yeah. up your own car really i think more so maybe like in in uh they're, they're kind of a, a bygone era i think i don't think they uh, i don't know those as much personally. as they used to but I, I think more so in the midwest maybe uh in in places like that but i i think they for sure exist uh i i mean i have never seen one myself but i i have a feeling i've seen one like uh or i've heard about ones here and there but like mostly in the midwest yeah Obviously, then he finds Christine and he buys it. I think he pays like $250 for it. And his parents are, you know, are angry with the fact that he didn't consult them first. You know, we begin to see this kind of slow decay in his character and this change. And this is why you say that the film is almost told from the point of view of Dennis, because we don't see a lot of the important things, these transi transitions with Arnie. And certainly by the point that we see him with Lee, we've not even seen, you know, the kind of awkward conversation they first had when he asked her out. And, 
that's all done off screen. This is all told from Dennis's point of view. And, and then again, another little touch by Carpenter that I just think really works and it goes against the norm and it goes against certainly what I was expecting. But one other thing that is a cool little touch, which we would later see in Michael Bay's Transformers films, is the use of songs on the car radio, which Christine uses to communicate with, usually her victims. And, but it's just such a clever little device, and it's one of so many the Carpenter uses in the film. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's fantastic the way they do that. Uh, we're going to touch on that later. But the, I mean, the score, of course, the Carpenter score is, is awesome, but then also you know, the way that they use these songs to, you know, they, they're communicating a message about the scene, you know, like whether it's a uh, uh, keep on knocking um, from a little Richard, you know, when someone's trying to break in or towards the end, there's a, um, there's another song, a uh, uh, classic song, but uh, yeah, I, I think they did a great job of like, of kind of pairing this up with the soundtrack. In fact, oh, that one at the end, isn't it Kyle? Um, one of the ones that Scorsese uses in Mean Streets. Which scene? I'm trying to think. It, it means where Arnie's dying. Pledging my love. I think it's yeah. called Pledging my love. And it's the second time he uses the song in the film. And Scorsese uses it in Mean Streets. And I can't picture the exact scene, but I can see a drunken Kaitel dancing. Oh, in the bar. The bar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That is. That's, that's the same song. Yeah. Same uh, one from Mean Streets. Yeah. 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 The, all the song choices in Christine are just are awesome and it, it's what we were talking about the other day in the chat too sky uh, it gives it they're all these kind of like 50s songs so it gives that weird 50s aesthetic and it's like it's almost a grungy like 50s film in a way because it had it's in the 80s but it's all these bygone era you know items car the, the music it, it's it gives it just such an unsettling unnerving feeling and it, it's just it's perfect for the tone it's yeah perfect. And then you've got the football game where Dennis gets uh, injured, Arnie and Lee are now together. And in any other film, we would have seen how they got together. It's a great way to show the change in Arnie because every time we see him, there's something different about it. Obviously, in this case, he's now got a girlfriend. Bearing in mind, he's kind of played the, the sort of uh, prototypical high school nerd. And then you know, there's, there's those other changes. Like, first off, his hair changes, doesn't it? His hair style. Then he loses the glasses. Then his clothes change gradually. And, and the way he carries himself, it just all works so well. And it's almost as if the way he dresses becomes more akin to the fashions of the late 50s, which is the era from which you know the, the car is. That's just another great little touch the carpenter uses to show that Arnie has got this connection to Christine. Obviously, Christine being a car from 1957, 58. He's almost then morphing into a character from you know the late 50s in the way he dresses and the way he appears. And I think Carpenter told Keith Gordon to just let loose and, and play his relationship with Christine with like this kind of um, this kind of psychosexual edge to it. You could argue that it's not done subtly, but it's done in a way that I never find too jarring. It's like it's not like he turns up and looks completely different and is acting like a completely different character. We do see something of a gradual transformation with him. Yeah, and they, yeah. they also there, there's a couple of cutscenes uh, where they um, they kind of show some of that or where people make a. Uh, comments like hey you know we're, you don't have your glasses on anymore and whatnot and like in the um you know, he has you know bad skin and whatnot and it does start to clear up and he starts to take on again the um characteristics of uh levey and and you know and that kind of like 1950s greaser uh sort of look you know kind of matching up to you know to the to the car of a kind of like a, i know he's a, a small stature but a little bit of a badass because he's got this cool car that you know basically can can uh repair itself you know so you know when you have that back in you, you i guess your you know your attitude starts to change yeah and then you've got the, the the driving movie theater scene with lee taking a bite out of the burger and you know whilst arnie is outside christine locks her in 
and she starts choking. And again, it's this kind of thing of how you know how powerful is Christine? What is she capable of? Because we obviously see in the opening scene on the production line the guy that gets in with the cigar and is putting the you know the cigar ash on the seat, and Christine kills him. How does she kill him? We're never told. How does Christine cause? lead to start choking does she cause it to start choking or is it just something that's happened by chance but again it's showing it's not telling it's not giving us too much insight and information as to how christine works you know what powers that she got clearly there's something obviously supernatural about her but again we're not given enough information for it to come across as yeah that's just that's just a totally contrived kind of um, story explanation you've given us and I, I just really again like how that's done yeah, I love that, and I love um, the unsettling part of that scene for me. I don't know why, but it just sticks in my head how bright the car gets, and the, those wide shots of just seeing her choking, and then Arnie realizing it's just just like a nice sympathy and sympathy, and it's just like just perfectly orchestrated. And yeah, that that scene always pops out in my head visually, just because of the lighting and just just the the nice placement of the camera, giving you an outside perspective of what's happening to her. And then Buddy and his cronies go to Darnell's and then they sneak in as Arnie's leaving Christine there and then they just proceed to smash the car to pieces. And then Arnie and Lee find her all busted up the next day and then Arnie loses it with Lee. And then later on, there's that scene with his parents where you know he's, he's swearing, he's cursing at his mother and then his father kind of follows him out to the, to the front door and then just Arnie grips him by the throat and you can see that Arnie is now totally lost it. He is just totally obsessed with this car and it was the suggestion by his dad that him and his mother try and help him buy a new car but Arnie's like no 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 you're not going to replace my girl that's when this relationship comes becomes something far beyond a, an owner car relationship and clearly you know we, we're seeing that there's this really kind of twisted perverted kind of relationship between the two so in the book he actually doesn't keep the car at the at the garage he actually keeps it at an airport parking lot and um, the way that the buddy and his crew go in there is one of their crew actually works as like a security guard there. So they like let in and, uh, you know, they, they do that that damage. Because I always thought, it, you know, one of the, the, the crazy things, and I know maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, you know, they, they totally total the car. They total the car. The fact that he's able to repair it so fast, at least in the film, you know, he always alludes that like, oh, it wasn't that bad. But everybody else was like, oh, yeah, it was totaled, you know, like every, all the descriptions and everything was like, you know, it was completely total. So how how did they repair? How did he repair it fast? You know, so, you know, something's up here. Something something's not right. But again, I, I, I still like these little changes and these little touches because it it provides a mystery because, you know, Arnie has a an alibi. So nobody wants to believe like, you know, the like you were saying before, the scary part of the unknown is like, oh, can this car? Or is this car actually like can it make itself you know better and, and do all these things like that's crazy yeah and then this all leads then to go, go back to episode three where myself and uh martin castle and matt we, we talked about john carpenter's the thing and, and just how absolutely just phenomenal the, the you know the practical effects were in that film and then there's this scene where christine having been smashed to pieces reassembles herself I've got to say, hands down, it is one of the most amazing effect sequences I've ever seen, all done for real in camera. And then the car was fitted with hydraulic rigs that would pull the car in on itself, effectively crushing it. And Carpenter just filmed it and played it in reverse. Roy Arbogast was the one who came up with this effect, but it's just so damn effective because it's not done with stop frame animation or any other kind of effect which would come across as artificial is actually the car is being crushed but it's obviously happening in reverse the way the film is, is played so it just looks as if this 
damaged car is repairing itself and it just I, I don't remember the effect when I first saw it being this well jaw dropping it just works as you know CGI even today you know even post Avatar 2 we still haven't seen a level of CGI that looks this effective and I'm pretty sure with morphing technology you could pretty much recreate the same kind of shot but this was all done for real in camera I got a far greater appreciation for something that's done for real uh, and, and looks as good as this and it being physical yeah. makes it even more terrifying like you you know it's real your eye is not seeing something fake it's actually happening and it it's such an unsettling thing to see. It's it's so to me freaky as hell. It just always gets me. And there's all there's always something unnatural looking about film footage being played in reverse. I always remember there was that scene. Yep. It was in funny enough another James Cameron film, The Abyss, where Michael Bean, having started a really crack up, he was kind of sat there, kind of bugging out, and they filmed him but James Cameron played the film in reverse. So the way he's acting, he's almost looking like Jeff Goldblum did in The Fly, like really jittery and weird. And it's just something that just plays off about footage being played in reverse. And it was the same with the car reassembling itself. It just looked, you could tell it was real and it was being done for real, but also because it was being played in reverse, it just looked kind of like otherworldly and supernatural. I just love it. It's just an amazing effect. It's brilliant. Uh, sorry, I, I was going to say that they, I think they filmed a lot of the scenes of the car of Christine after uh, after they had already in the movie. Uh, they, they decided that they needed to show more of this kind of like uh, Christine putting itself back together. And um, I, I believe I saw that in one of the uh, either in the commentary or, or in one of the, the shorts that they had uh, complimenting. Yeah. The film. Yeah. I think That's it was on the making awesome. of the fact that they said, yeah, that was all done like, you know, after the main shoot wow it's an afterthought effect and it's so lasting that is so cool that yeah. is so cool and then obviously now the fact that we've seen that christine can repair herself you've got moochie's death scene so there's like this protracted chase and then he kind of backed up into a loading bay in like some warehouse but this loading bay is too narrow for christine to drive into but she forces herself in tearing up her sides in order to crush him and then now that we've seen that she can reconstruct herself, you know, the next time we see her, she's you know brand new again. And again, it makes it makes the scene all the more inventive. The fact that you know this car is clever, it knows its limitations, but it also knows what it's capable of, and it's willing to damage itself in order to, you know, make the kill because it can just repair itself. Yeah, that's a it's a really uh, cool. I think it's another really cool kill uh, that happened uh, there. You you think uh, Mucci at least thinks he he's gotten away by going in that little. Um, I don't know what you want to call it, a little bay, a little truck bay, um, where he, you know, it's too, there's no way that this car can fit in there, right? It's too big, but doesn't know Christine, uh, you know, for, for the motivation that Christine has of basically tearing itself apart just so it can crush him. And then, you know, I don't even know what would, you know, happen after that pulls out of that that thing and is completely crushed, but, you know, obviously can put itself back together, but it's a really, really great scene, really terrifying uh, kill. And, uh, uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Mookie, so I kind of like seeing him eat it. And then we've got the introduction of the late great Harry Dean Stanton as Jenkins, the police detective. Now, I just love his persistence as he grills Arnie about how he was able to repair his smashed up car. Where did he find that shade of red paint? Because Jenkins has done his you know, investigating before and he's found out that you can't get that paint easily. You know, it's good detective work, but it also begs the question, what does Jenkins suspect that Arnie has actually done? It's unlikely at this point that he suspects anything approaching what the truth is. The fact that Arnie's got this supernatural possessed killing machine for a car. And Arnie even asks him, he says, well, is it against the law for me to fix my busted up car? But I think, you know, you've got that young cast of unknowns, but bringing in actors like Robert Prosky, 
Roberts Blossom and then Harry Dean Stanton he just gives the film like a, an added dimension much like when Carpenter used Donald Pleasance in Halloween yeah casting the unknowns and then just having these amazing character actors just you know fill in these spot roles that that's what Carpenter is great at with his casting and it, it really just brings life to to these characters because like Harry Dean's such a unique guy uh Prosky's such a unique person and it really just exemplifies the other characters and having these pros in there like that. It just, it's really good stuff. So then Carpenter uses date stamps on screen. And I, I never really understood why, you know, he chose to do this because if it's done in, you know, say one of the Halloween films to show us the transition as we approach October 31st, then that makes sense. But I don't really get why he saw the need to use it in Christine in terms of what it does for, for the story. I like it nevertheless, but I, I was just thinking when I was watching it this time, what is the purpose of, of showing specific dates and, and how time is passing? Or is it just kind of doing it to kind of show us the length of time over which this transition and change which Arnie is going through is taking? I never thought it was necessary. I think Carpenter just does that in films like it's kind of constant he does it in a mouth of madness as well a bunch of his films he's done it i i found it unnecessary for this film though personally so then buddy and his two remaining cronies deaths at the gas station this is just a fucking amazing set piece i mean this has got some jaw-dropping stunt work and it's got a gas station explosion to rival the ones in robocop and thelma and louise i mean it is just just a huge explosion. And that image of Christine driving out of, of, of this explosion engulfed in flames. I mean, come on, how the hell did they do that? It's just absolute movie magic. Now, I, I know that, you know, it's a bit of a rhetorical question because stuntman Terry Leonard was driving the burning car in a full flameproof suit. But how the hell do you drive a car when the car is on fire? How do you see where <laughs> he's going? Talent. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, he, he said that he did have trouble because they, so, so one of the attack, one of the the cool things that they did was um, they would ever every time Christine was by herself, you know, not with somebody um, in the car, you know, possessed Christine. They had the, the windows were dark, right, so you couldn't yeah. see in. So the stunt drivers, you can see in. But during the scene, it he had not only were the windows dark, but he's wearing like a full suit, and so he said he could barely like he couldn't be, he really couldn't see yeah. out of that thing. So he was kind of like just driving it based on uh, you know. Uh, I guess uh, intuition and whatnot, but uh, it is an amazing. You know, I know they built that gr that uh, garage um, that they, they ended up blowing up. They built that, but I, I agree with you. One of the my most favorite, like kind of, I guess, movie clips or, or stills would be Christine on fire. You know, kind of going down the highway like uh, bearing down. Yeah, just on fire, chasing Buddy down the road is just so iconic looking. And then charred and burned up, Christine drives back to Darnell's, and, and Darnell, who's still there. Uh, late at night, inspects it and only to find that there's no one inside. And then the way that he's killed by being crushed by the seat moving forward and, and kind of crushing his chest against the steering wheel, it's just another really inventive choice by Carpenter because ultimately she is a car. You know, there is only going to be a certain amount of things that she can mechanically do if she can, you know, control herself and like crushing him against the dashboard is just uh, such a, a clever idea. Yeah, it's so economical. He's just, the, the way they chose the kills, you, you, you said it before, but they were trying to make a film where they could sell it to a younger audience. And it's the only, one of the only films that does that in the 80s where I don't feel cheaped out by the kills. Like most horror films that were like either ripped up by the MPAA or just like are intentionally cutting away. I'm always like, are you kidding me? Uh, I'm just, I, I get frustrated with that. This film 
I don't feel that at all, even though that was the intention. It's just so well done, and each one is so, each kill is so creative um, and unique where I'm, I'm satisfied as a horror fan through and through. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you look at it, like in like Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, John Carpenter showed <laughs> a guy, showed you killing a little girl, shooting her in the chest. I know it's terrible. That makes me laugh every time. I, it's so <laughs> ridiculous. It's awesome, but it's so ridiculous. But then if you look then at how he dialed things down in the fog in 1979, to the point where he had to actually go in and, and shoot additional little inserts to kind of up the kind of horror factor, well, the year before in Halloween, there's not an excessive amount of gore, far from it. You know, there's very little in the way of blood and, and kind of like visceral stuff. He kind of does it again here, bearing in mind that he went full bore, batshit crazy, gore to the max in the thing. He kind of dials things back for Christine and it's more about the kind of sense of ominous atmosphere and, and, and tension and just that cool carpenter vibe that is often you know helped out by his amazing scores. And then the following day, and by now, Arnie is looking really sharp in a red shirt and black waistcoat as Junkins questions him as to his whereabouts last night. And then Arnie and Dennis go for this late night ride and we see Dennis and Lee just beforehand discussing what's going on with their friend and his growing obsession with Christine. And then during the ride, we see some really like kind of gloriously over the top acting from Keith Gordon looking all wild eyed and crazy. <laughs> I, think, I think it kind of works though in, in the sense of this, this movie because he's obviously you know he has this connection with christine he's obsessed and he's not in his right mind so he he you know it is going to be dialed up it is going to be you know a little bit uh super uh heightened because uh he, he's not arnie anymore he's basically a, a, a completely different person the movie earns it the movie earns that performance because it, he gives such a realistic performance for most of the film so once he does go over the edge you're all bought in by this point, and whatever John Carpenter is going to give you, you're going to be you're going to be taking it, and it works for me, hundred percent. Guys, one of the benefits, right, of seeing this transition almost happen off screen is the fact that we are saved and the scenes of Arnie just talking to the car and having like this internal monologue with the car, who's obviously communicating with him as well. The fact that we saved all of that and it's done off screen and we just see the gradual change in Arnie, I just think it works all the more better and it's just far less conventional and, and kind of, well, hokey for want of a better word. The time management on this, uh, to use a sports analogy, you know, is just is perfect. You know, they, they're telling the story that needs to be told and hitting all the key points without oversaturating it. And uh, the credit to everybody involved for basically making that happen from, from uh, you know, like I said, a 700 plus page book to put that uh, what they say one minute of, of uh, our one page is equal to one minute so the, the the way that they were able to do this and, and get creative and and just be smart about it i think uh, is a testament to them yeah no chuffa no chuffa at all and then the next day dennis scratches darnell's tonight into christine's bonnet with a screwdriver and this then sets up the trap that dennis and lee are trying to set the big showdown between this sleek and sexy plymouth fury and this big hulking yellow caterpillar bulldozer we've got again some more really cool kind of stunt driving work going on you know in the warehouses as christine is, is driving around smashing into you know steel girders pillars trying to to kill lee and, and dennis is kind of blocking her in with this uh, bulldozer and then arnie gets through thrown through Christine's windshield and gets a big shard of glass through his torso and then dies. But Christine isn't done yet and, and she limps towards Lee 
and then Dennis rolls up over her rear end in the bulldozer, but she's still fighting with him, and then we get more of those cool reconstruction insert shots, which, like you say, Jacob were filmed after the main shoot. And it's just, it, you know, it, it, it's like vibes of the Terminator film, which we hadn't even seen at this point, because it would come out a year later, but it's just, she's unstoppable and she, she just won't stop she's almost like the t-1000 isn't she you damage her and she'll just <laughs> pull herself back together i'm glad you made that comparison I, comparison I was thinking that same thing of this you know man versus machine uh, kind of thing which is what this is and yeah this had come out you know a uh, year before yeah um but uh, i think the you know the, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you guys because i think this is a, a matter of uh maybe opinion and and one i can't remember I, i'm pretty sure in the book uh, it, it's, it's explained but arnie's in the car for that final scene so he's actually trying to kill uh you know lee and and um dennis right yeah but the others, the other scenes, you know, obviously he wasn't in the car with, uh, well, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe he was in the car with the fire and, and then he, you know, he gets out after it. Like, do you guys think he was, for all the other kills that Christine does, do you think that Arnie was in the car at, at any point? I like the ambiguity of him. Like, you know, conceivably, Arnie could have been in the car when Mucci was killed because it was only the sides of Christine which were damaged. But the, the explosion in the gas station, there's, there's no way he could have survived that. I've always interpreted that he's not in the vehicle yeah. when the Christine's killing. And I think for me personally, I like that because it, it hurts Arnie when he finds out the pain that Christine has called caused to some of these people. Some of the people he's glad to have gotten hurt, but there's some people that he, you can tell Arnie is like, wait, this isn't right in some ways. And it took him like, you, you see like a little bit of internal conflict, but at the end of the day, he is succumbed to Christine at this point. Um, I, I like I, I like it. It is ominous, and I do like that. But I've always interpreted uh, it's Christine on her own. And then we cut to a junkyard, and Christine's being crushed into a cube. And then you've got just that little tease in the final close-up that she isn't quite dead. And then roll credits, and then you've got a reprisal of George Thorogood's "Bad to the Bone," and we're done. It's a hell of a way to end it. Yeah, I, I I love the ending. I I I, well, I love the movie, of course, but it just it's a perfect short ending. Just puts it up, ties it up with a nice bow, and and bringing the song back is perfect. And, and Carpenter and, and Alan Howarth, who we collaborated with on numerous films, they did the score, and it's it's just this. I don't know, it's just this typically wonderful John Carpenter score. It's got familiar kind of low key synths and that we've heard many times throughout his films, but just the way that it sets the atmosphere for the film. This callbacks to so many of his films up until this point, and it just works perfectly. And you just listen to it and straight away. It's like, yep, yeah, this is a John Carpenter score. You know, you get what kind of movie you're about to watch. That that score sets it perfect. And there's, um, I have the vinyl of all he re-recorded all his themes a couple of years ago, and he like did it with his son. Uh, Christine is the best one on that vinyl by far. And uh, there's a beautiful music video that he shot for it on YouTube. Highly recommend. It's the closest we've ever gotten to a sequel. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Cool. It's great. Hey, uh, Kyle. So the is uh, the because um, I, I I barely saw. Um, I know it's on a John Carpenter film, but I, I barely saw uh, last year. I, uh, late last year, I saw um, Halloween Three: Season the Witch. And yes. I remember the score. I think Carpenter did the score for that. And I remember hearing the score and be like, "Oh my God, this sounds like Christine. This sounds like uh, the from Christine." So I, I, I don't know if you if you thought the same thing. If it had the similar kind of vibes. Well, I think it's the same year. And the, he did the score. And him and Alan uh, Harwith did the score for Halloween Three. Yeah, it, it is so similar. 
Um, especially it's as synthy as he's gotten for sure. But it, it's it's actually Halloween three. It's funny you say that. That's one of my favorite scores. Period. I, I adore that film. And um, yeah, they're they're so similar, but both very effective in the same okay. way. See, here's the thing, guys. Now, Christine, they began shooting the film in April '83. Halloween three season of the witch was released June '83. So obviously. Carpenter and Howarth would have done the score for Halloween 3 first, but obviously being so close together, and bearing in mind, I think, uh, was, yeah, um, Christine was released December 9th, 1983, so this was literally the next score that they did, so yeah, it, that would completely explain why there were so many similarities between the two scores. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. 100%. So like I say, it was released December 9th, 1983, made on a budget of $9.7 million, and they made $21 million domestically. I can't find worldwide figures for you know for how well it did globally. So, um, you know, a modest success. And it was also, unlike The Thing, critically well-received. Where does Christine rank, guys, for you in the kind of, um, your, your ranking of John Carpenter's films? Uh, for me, personally, it's in the top five. I think it's probably number five. But it's it's in the top five, no doubt. And every time I watch it, it becomes even more of a favorite. I think it's my personal number three favorite. But it's definitely, uh, for his filmography, it's in the top five. I think it's my number two. I, I know how crazy as that sounds, but uh, I just, I don't know, I love it. I, I've loved it for so long, and I, I watch it so, you know, there's a handful of films I watch pretty much like at least once every year if not twice you know and christine is one of those and you know i i know he's done so many great movies that i love but i yeah i think for me it's number two well as i said at the start re-watching this film it really hit me how well crafted it is and the thing that really stands out for me is the carpenter coming off the back of a thing which was you know a critical and commercial failure at the time but that's now gone on to be widely regarded as possibly his best film certainly it is for me the thing for me is a perfect film as perfect a film as i've seen so from a creative standpoint i think the john carpenter was at the top of his game around about this time and i think you know he pretty much had been more or less on this creative plateau since halloween which he made five years earlier and as such i think being at the top of his game he was able to take a story that it could be argued guys you know let's be fair a car being alive and possessed of pure evil is a bit hokey a bit ridiculous but he manages to approach it in such a way that it works and it never veers into camp or self-parody and like so many of his films christine isn't an out and out horror but what it does so well is it sets a mood and it sets a tone and you know something which is assisted by carpenter scores which they always do so well to enhances the tone and the mood of a film but it's also got these amazing stunt driving scenes, these those regeneration effects, which are just jaw-dropping. Something the CGI just can't replicate, I don't think, today. It's, this is certainly, for me, upper middle tier of John Carpenter films. It's never going to compete with Halloween, and certainly not The Thing, but I think, I, I, I'd say it's probably the equal of other great Carpenter films, such as Assault on Precinct 13, The Fog, and They Live. Whether or not it you know, you've, you've then got films which might be a little bit further up. For me, certainly, Escape from New York might be top tier, you know, just underneath Halloween and the thing. You've also then got Big Trouble in Little China. But I wouldn't put that, even that film, I wouldn't put that this much above, that much above Christine, if at all, because it's just floored me how well this film is made and how simple and streamlined it is. Because, you know, you just said, Jacob, he's, he's taken a 700-odd page book by King about a killer car 
Like, how much can you say about that, that story in 700 pages? And it's just been brilliantly condensed by the writer and by Carpenter down to something far more manageable. And it's just a really sleek and efficient film. And it's one of the most surprising rewatches I've done since this podcast began, where I thought, ah, this is, I've always had a kind of bit of a soft spot for Christine, but I just don't think it's going to live up to expectations. And, you know, on a rewatch 30 years after I've seen it, at least 30 years. And it's just blew me away. It, it really did. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to hear that because I, I think uh, I think Christine's a slept-on film, not only of Carpenter but of, of you know the, the adaptions from Stephen King. Um, and like I said, I know it's not exactly like the book, and I think um, they did you know out of all his adaptions, I think this one serves it the most by the changes that they did. Going back to those elements of like, oh well, it's, it's kind of ridiculous a killer car, but you know that the car doesn't do anything like you know like like the hood doesn't turn into a mouth and like start eating people or you know something ridiculous like that. Like the things that it does, I think are if possession of a car was possible, this is the kind of things it would do. You know, like yeah. run people over or you know um you know crush them you know they, it's just like simple things like that so the whole terror factor of it i think the whole relatability of you know the high school like being in high school or being um a person like arnie even if you're not like that much of a i guess of an outcast but you know everybody's felt that kind of uh, feeling in the past of, of being a you know some type of outsider and uh, like i said you know even parts of the you know the kills uh, i'm kind of like yeah screw that guy because I, I, I didn't like that you know that person anyway that, that was a bad that's a bad guy he's probably going to grow up to be a terrible person let him be off the earth <laughs> uh that's actually the like brilliant thing of this movie is and some of the great horror films of the 80s specifically they actually give you people to root against but it's not everyone like a friday the 13th movie where you're like okay I hate all of you. I can't wait till Jason kills you. Now, this one is like, I like some of you. I don't like some of you. And I'm rooting for some of you to die. And then there's other people. I'm like, please don't kill that person. I like them. And uh, Carpenter just does such a fantastic job with that. And this as an adaptation for Stephen King's, uh, you know, books and whatnot. I think this is one of the best by far. Uh, it's up there with The Shining, Carrie. And th those other ones are vastly different from the books. But... Christine is the most economical uh, adaptation of any of the Stephen yeah, King stories. And um, I just say, I, I think it's so brilliant. And, you know, it's interesting because only a few years after Stephen King, I, I know King didn't like this film. He decided, all right, I got to make my own killer car movie and made back some overdrive. And that went awesome for him, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, talking about in terms of, you know, Carpenter's films we've done and, and like you mentioned, Carl talking about in terms of Stephen King adaptations, I, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as an adaptation like The Shawshank Redemption, which yeah, that that's one of the best. Yeah, well, sure. I think we'll talk about that film at another time because God only knows that the whole of the Film 89 team are going to fill an, an entire episode about The Shawshank Redemption one day, maybe next year. That this, but the Shawshank Redemption has the the advantage of of, of it being actually part of a novella, um, and you know four four, four seasons, um, and which actually Stand by Me, which is another great adaption yeah, that was body. done. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, I've read, I have I have it, I own it, and I um, you know I think it has Apple Pupil, another one that that was adapted that's in that 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 set. 
they're kind of like short stories in a way and it's almost like exactly like you know like uh, mirrored what what's put on the page but um i think the you know the feat that they were able to do here with christine you know taking a book you know and another famous book of his uh, uh it you know which is like i think over a thousand pages um you know and that you know they had to do two movies you know to yeah, try to encompass that. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, they, they've done a great job. And, you know, Stephen King, I know he gets a lot of uh, flack for his uh, kind of how he ends his, his books. You know, he, he, it's always kind of like, a, you know, they don't end maybe as, as well as they could. But I think what they did with this movie and, and the changes is that they've made, you know, a really you know good ending and a good satisfying ending. And even with that little like kind of like a, a wink uh, at the camera with the, the grill moving at the very end where you're like, oh, well, is Christine still alive? Yeah, it, like I said, it, I would say it's, it's not for me the best Stephen King adaptation. You've got, I, I'd say better than this, you've certainly got The Shawshank Redemption. You've got The Body, which was also then obviously turned into Stand By Me. I know that he doesn't obviously like Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, but I love it. It's one of my all-time favorite horror films. He doesn't like any of the adaptations. He doesn't like any of them. I, I love the trailer to Maximum Overdrive. It's one of the greatest things ever, where he's like, you know, when something needs to be done right, you got to do it yourself. And he's referring to every other director that's yeah. made a film before him. And it's so disrespectful to, to those filmmakers. But uh, yeah, Misery's great too. Yeah, so. Misery, yeah, amazing. So yeah, you know, it's it's not the best Stephen King adaptation, but it's certainly, like you say, one of the most economical. And yeah, great film. So there we have it guys and girls, our 40th anniversary celebration of John Carpenter's Christine and our third episode that we've entirely dedicated to a John Carpenter film. Obviously we've got lots more to go. DM us, tweet us, hit us up on Facebook, email us admin at film89.co.uk with your requests for what John Carpenter film you'd like us to cover next. So gents, where can people reach you on social media if they want to talk to you about cars, killer cars and John Carpenter or anything else film related? Uh, I'm on uh, only Letterboxd right now. I'm not on socials at the moment. But uh, if you want to talk movies with me on Letterboxd, I'm at Kyle Reardon, R-E-A-R-D-O-N. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter, but I, I, I have scaled back to, uh, my kind of presence on there. I, I know I, I probably unfollow the, I probably only follow like 300 people now versus before it was like thousands, but I couldn't keep up. It was, I don't even know how people do it where they're, kind of on the ball like i mean i have a job and a family so it's almost impossible but you can reach me at uh, jratm23 on twitter cool and you can find me on twitter and facebook at sky movies and you can find the rest of the film 19 either at film 89.co.uk where you'll find links to all our bios and social media and you can also find us all on twitter and facebook at film 89 uk if you've enjoyed this episode, then please make sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you always stay up to date with us. And please leave us a positive review on your podcast provider of choice, especially if it happens to be Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who's left us five-star reviews lately. And thanks to every one of our listeners. This podcast has now grown far beyond anything that the guys who founded it ever thought it could be. And we are all extremely grateful for our ever-growing listener base. And we hope that in 2023, we continue to give you great discussions on your favorite shows and films. But for now, all that's left to say is stay safe, be excellent to each other. But more importantly, stay classy. Stay classy.